Welcome to this podcast for Classical 91.5. I'm Julia Figueres. One person, one piece. This week, your Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra tackles Mahler's enigmatic Symphony Number no. 7. Here to solve the symphonic stumper is RPO Music Director Ward Stair. As always, welcome, Ward. Hi, Julia. Great to be here. Great to be here. So this week, it is just Mahler's Symphony Number no. 7 which is, well, as you said, embrace the weirdness. <laughs> well, yeah, it's. I'm chuckling when you say just Mahler 7 because Mahler 7 is such a uh, huge work and it's it just covers so much ground and, boy, there's a lot there's a lot of music in it. There's a lot to talk about. Um, it's got a very interesting history, but I think, well, for me, it might be the most interesting of the Mahler symphonies because, you know, it is enigmatic and it does have this sort of um this reputation for being difficult you know difficult to understand difficult for the audience to grasp difficult to interpret but at the same time i think if you love Mahler and you really give the symphony a chance and don't listen to all that you know noise that people make about how it's you know the finale is flawed or the you know why did he use all these weird elements from the sixth symphony that sort of worked there but don't really work in the seventh symphony and you know why the two nachtmusik uh movements why 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 well you have to take a step back and and i think you have to look at Mahler, the person Mahler, the artist and i when you do that and I love Mahler, as you know. Yeah. But when you look at it through that lens and from that perspective, then I think it becomes really the most personal of all his symphonies. This is probably the only symphony ever begun, at least in his head, in a rowboat. <laughs> That's true. It's a good story. Um, actually, the whole genesis of the piece is uh, unique in his output because, for one thing, uh, he never really, as far as we know, worked on two huge pieces at the same time, except for the sixth and the seventh symphony. And he was actually writing both of them simultaneously. But um, he didn't have the bookends, you know, to the seventh symphony done. What he started with was the Nachtmusik, which is the, the second and the fourth movement. And I think he might have written the fourth movement uh, first out of all of them. And <clears throat> we can start there because. Um, if you know the Sixth Symphony, you know it's called the Tragic, and it's really heavy. I mean, it deals with just, you know, sort of shattering elements, and you just feel defeated and exhausted at the end of it, emotionally and physically, if you have to play it. Um, but I think it was very crushing for Mahler, you know, and he composed the Nachtmusik and the Fourth Movement, which is a romance, kind of as therapy. You know, he was so immersed in this oppression and the weight of the Sixth Symphony that I think he needed a little romance and a little lightness and a little love to sort of counterbalance that. And the fourth movement of the Seventh Symphony is one of the most divine, exquisite pieces ever written. I mean, it's it's beautiful. It's in the spirit of sort of an old serenade, um, you know, think Romeo and Juliet, uh, a suitor under a balcony, uh, under the moonlight, singing to his beloved. Um, and that was very much in, in his mind. And that's why he chose to incorporate the guitar and the mandolin to sort of give it that troubadour uh, feel. Um, and the melodies are among his most beautiful. 
um, the way he uses the two guitars and the or the guitar mandolin and then the harp, uh, and the way he scales down the whole orchestra. It's really chamber music in the fourth movement. Very small ensemble, um, fewer instruments involved, and softer. It's all um, the the character is sort of singing the serenade under the balcony, but. Um, as with Romeo and Juliet, there's a danger all around, so you don't want to be detected. And throughout the symphony, uh, as I've been studying it, and this is a piece that I first became aware of way, way back when I was a trombone student, and I learned the tenor horn solo as an excerpt for the first movement. And I thought, well, this is unusual, and it got me, and I already liked Mahler, but I didn't know anything about the Seventh Symphony, which I think most people fall into that category. Um, so I started to learn a little bit about it, focusing mainly on the first movement because that's where the tenor solo, tenor horn solo is. Um, but I was already intrigued way back when, you know, this is, you know, long time ago. And it sort of stuck with me. And then I had to learn it, um, I don't know, about 10 years ago for a competition that I was doing. They wanted you to learn Mahler 7. And so that's when I really started to study it. Um, and it's sort of, it really was a puzzle that I couldn't solve back then. But I kept thinking about it. I kept reading about it. And um, one of the best sources for Mahler, for any of the Mahler symphonies, really, but I think especially for the Seventh Symphony, is the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam and Mengelberg and Mengelberg's notes. Because you may know that, um, you know, Mengelberg was a great conductor and he was the music director of the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam. Um, but in Mahler's time, his music was not that popular, not that well understood, except by a few people like Mengelberg and, and Bruno Walter. And, you know, his Mahler sort of had his disciples. Um, but one of them, Mengelberg, happened to have a great orchestra over in Amsterdam. So every time Mahler wrote a new symphony, Mengelberg couldn't wait to play it in Amsterdam. And so he, Mahler would send him the score and the parts, and Mengelberg would spend like, you know, a month preparing the orchestra and teaching them the music and so that they were ready and then Mahler would arrive and Mahler would walk on stage and then Mengelberg would sit in the front row of the audience like a an assistant um, and listen very carefully as Mahler himself rehearsed his own pieces and he wrote a lot of great information in the margins of his score and a lot of those pages still exist and you can see them in Amsterdam and you can read what Mengelberg was writing. He was like taking dictation during Mahler's rehearsal. It's the closest thing we have to, uh, you know, having footage of seeing Mahler rehearse. Um, and so when you start to to read some of these anecdotes and some of these images that, that Mahler gives, they're dangerous because some of them he was, you know, just trying to make a point to the musicians and he wasn't really commenting on any programmatic elements to the music, and a lot of people misinterpret that and take it too far, and Mahler hated that, by the way. But at the same time, um, it is important, uh, and especially with a piece like the seventh that is difficult to grasp. Uh, and so in the fourth movement, one of the images that he gave the orchestra was, um, you know, a, the troubadour with the serenade, but he said, but you can't wake the dogs, you know, because you don't want to be chased off the property, right? So... There are all these great flourishes where the, the orchestra gets more and more passionate and ardent in the singing, but then all of a sudden it's like, you know, the woman up on the balcony says, shh, honey, you got to be quiet. They're going to catch us, you know. So these big swells, and then all of a sudden, shh, you know, and it's very intimate, and you get this real sense of romance and back and forth, and it's just, it's absolutely delightful. The first Nachtmusik, which was the one that really began in the rowboat, he was in a rowboat. He was being rowed in a lake. And you can hear the waves. You can feel the rock of the boat. 
through the whole thing. This was my entree into this symphony was that particular mm-hmm. Nachtmusik number one. Mm-hmm. The first movement, right, because there, there's the first movement, which is huge. I mean, it's like 20, it's almost a half hour long. It's a big movement. I mean, it's longer than a lot of Beethoven symphonies, <laughs> the first movement of a five movement symphony, no less. Um, but yeah, the so that movement and the the rowboat story is, is another great one. Um, and that one's not titled Nachtmusik. I just don't want to confuse the listeners. It is about night, but the right. first Nachtmusik is actually the second movement. So it's huge first movement, Nachtmusik number one, which is the second movement, the scherzo, which is subtitled Schattenhaft, which is, we'll talk about that in a minute. It's a great word. Then the fourth movement, which is the romance I was just talking about. And then the fifth movement, which is a rondo um, that's got all sorts of challenges in the form and the interpretation. But let's start at the very beginning. Going back to the beginning, yes, to get the sequence here. Um, the rowboat story is great because, um, as I said, he was toying with these two, you know, the ideas of two symphonies, but he didn't have much for the seventh, even though he had just written the sixth. So he wrote the two Nachtmusik movements, and then he really hit a wall. He had writer's block, and he talked about that. Um, and, you know, at the time, things hadn't come to a head yet, but there was also a lot of tension in his professional life. And yeah, his, things were not going well. Things were not going well for him in his position as music director of the Staatsoper or the Hofoffer, you know, in... Um, in Vienna. And so he, I think he had a lot of stress. Um, but you know, he was still from the outside looking in kind of on top of the world. It was like the calm before the storm. Um, and it's also interesting to note that, but from the time he finished the seventh symphony to when it was premiered, almost three years went by. And during that time he had huge tragedy. He, he left the opera, um, and ended up going to New York and his, his daughter died. So both of those really awful things happened. And he was diagnosed. <clears throat> and, the, yes, and the heart condition was finally officially diagnosed. And so he had those three things that hit him. And he did make some changes between the completion of the symphony and the premiere to sort of make it a little bit darker. Um, and the two Nachtmusik movements sort of gave, that's why it's called the Song of the Night, you know, the symphony. And it's it's thought of as this really dark, you know, not evil, but just, you know, sort of melancholy, mysterious, just a lot of darkness is associated. And, and I think that's also plays into the whole confusion and it's impossible. It's incomprehensible, like all this, this darkness in a lot of different ways. But if you read his letters to publishers after he first wrote the piece, we're talking like 1905, 1906, he talks about how cheerful it is. Yeah. And I remember when I first read that, I thought, really? It's cheerful? And uh, he's got an odd sense of humor. Well, <laughs> but but then if you take a closer look, not so much at the first movement, because the first movement is very serious, but all the other movements have moments of pleasure and joy, even though it's sort of in a nocturnal setting. And I mean, there's darkness, but there's the mystery in the darkness, I think, is also can be exciting and can be fun, you know, in the in the second, third and fourth movement's a little bit different. That's the romance. But I'll talk about that more. But anyway, going back to the beginning. Um, so he had this writer's block. He had gone to his, you know, normal uh, summer retreat sort of setting to try to write, as he always did. And he just, he couldn't come up with anything for the, he knew he had these two little character pieces, but that was all he had. And he says that uh, when he was being rowed across the lake, uh, all of a sudden when the oars hit the water, he had this 
image and boom. And in like three weeks or something like, like that, I mean, it might not have been exactly three weeks, but it was a very short period of time, he came up with the first, third, and fifth movement, which altogether totals, you know, 45 minutes of music right there. So that, that in and of itself is, you know, a symphony by a lot of people's standards. Um, but again, um, the there's more to it than just the oars striking the water and, you know, not to disagree with you, but I, cause I, that's what I've been taught for a long time, but there's more to it. He said, um, after Mengelberg had written that down and the word had gotten around and he heard people talking about it, he said, well, it's not just oars in the, in the water. In fact, I didn't mean to literally depict that, but it's the image and the overall sense of the power of nature that he's trying to evoke in the first movement. And, and the tenor horn is meant to be the voice of nature, you know. What is a tenor horn? A tenor horn is kind of like like a baritone if you're a band person, a baritone euphonium. Uh, it's played by a trombone player, but the bore is a little bit more narrow, so it gives a kind of a more, um, what's the right word, not strident, but just a little bit more of a, a piercing tone about it, whereas a euphonium is a little softer tenor horn is more like a it's like a big Wagner tuba if you know what a Wagner tuba is it's shaped more like a uh, baritone in that the bell is upright but it's not straight up it's angled like a Wagner tuba and it's in B flat played by a trombone player so um you know it gives and it's kind of like the Wagner tubas in the ring or the steer horn that he you know Wagner uses and you know Mahler was a big Wagner fan. He conducted a lot of Wagner. In fact, there are lots of references to Meistersinger in the last movement of the Seventh Symphony, um, which we can talk about in a minute. But um, so the the tenor horn is meant to be the voice of nature. But nature, which Mahler was, you know, that was a huge part of his life, and he wrote lots. I mean, the Third Symphony is so much about nature. There's nature in the First Symphony. There's nature in all the symphonies. But in this symphony, it's about sort of the brutal side of nature and how nature is unforgiving. Nature is all powerful. You cannot fight and resist nature and nature. And one of the things I think in nature, especially back then in the 19th century, early 20th century, but he's thinking of it, I think from 19th century mentality was darkness. I mean, darkness was really terrifying because they, they didn't have the benefits of all the illumination that we have today. Exactly. You think about when the sun went down. Yeah, that's and, and it is scary. It's scary. Yeah, yeah. You know, and we don't have street lights. That's right. And you don't have you 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 have candles. That's right. Which means you've got huge dark corners mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. that will always be lurking. And it, right. it's always struck me that um, darkness was a very different thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Darkness was, I mean. It, it was scary because it really represented the unknown and it could really represent danger, but also mystery because, you know, you really didn't know what was in the darkness. It could be buried treasure. It could be something wonderful, or it could be an awful monster or a predator or a killer or, you know, it could have been anything back then. And so when I think about the image of Mahler in the boat, uh, I think about the oars because the rhythm that he chose, is very even, like, you know, an, an even, an oarsman, well-trained in his craft, you know, evenly stroking the boat across the, the lake. But it's also, it's very quiet, but it's very precise. And I, I said to the orchestra, I wanted them to think about, like, a calm lake. If you've ever been 
in any body of water, I guess, where it's really pretty calm and you row. And when those oars pierce the water, there's this little ping about it. But it's not loud, but it's, you know, ping. You can hear the, the water sort of lapping very clearly but very quietly. And so I think about that and I think about Mahler. And I don't know whether this is true or not, but I think that he was being rowed across this lake at dusk. So I think the darkness is approaching. And the combination of the atmosphere of that calm lake, the gentle, you know, piercing of the oars into the through the surface of the water, and the, the realization that night was approaching, and the power of that, and the fact that he couldn't stop it, and this is nature. And then you hear the voice of the tenor horn, which is really very declamatory, and um, Mengelberg says it's the tyranny of nature. He Mahler said that to the orchestra. You know, it's tyrannical at times because really it's absolute. You cannot escape nature. No matter what you do, nature is more powerful. This is a very different take on the idea of water in Boats and Waters than, say, Ravel's right. Sur, sur Lo Chien, mm-hmm, which is mm-hmm. a very gentle right. kind of lulling. This is this is something else entirely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, it wasn't that long since we did the um, Isle of the Dead, which also opens with a rowing uh, toward the Isle. But that's a turbulency. That's an uneven gait about it, which is part of the magic of that. But this is very still. This is very different. What Mahler, And the way he sets us up for these um, these just really, I mean, you can almost not breathe in the beginning because in you sense maybe there's some steam rising off the lake or whatever. It's just this very mysterious atmosphere. Then you hear the tenor horn, um, and the first statement from the tenor horn, Mahler is very specific with the rhythm. And the rhythm is actually very important throughout the entire symphony, perhaps more so than in any of his other symphonies. Rhythm is very important. And in the opening, the orchestra... He's playing, it's very slow tempo, and he's playing the 30-second notes. So, da, 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 even 30-second notes. But the tenor horn actually has 64th notes in only the first phrase. So they have to be fit in very precisely. So it's, you know, beam, beam, and then it's, mm, in, fit into just one of those 30-second notes. So again, you know, it's difficult to execute, but if you do it right, you get this real sense of architecture and control, you know, that nature has being so precise with those 64th notes and, and how the rhythm of the 32nd notes is like a very, very slow funeral march, which was one of Mahler's, you know, hallmarks. Um, it's just un, inescapable, really, you know, and very powerful. So then the orchestra <clears throat> goes through a series of... Um, struggles really and I think it's about and then as the night falls and it becomes completely dark you can take it in a lot of different ways conceptually it can be a struggle a struggle against the power of nature struggle against um, you know insomnia I think it's a sleepless night a restless if you get any rest it's it's not you know REM sleep <laughs> you're very it's not good or what I think it really is is a, an inner struggle. Mike Mahler's um, psyche, his inner, you know, demons sort of coming out. Although all of those things can be one. Right, and and they are, and they are all tied together. So, I mean, <clears throat> this is my first time conducting Mahler 7, and 
I sure hope it won't be my last, and I'm sure I'll continue to understand it better, but I do feel like after 10 years of thinking about it off and on, I'm starting to get some sort of a picture. I mean, I by no means, you know, I'm trying to say that I have all the answers, but you have to think about so many things when you craft your interpretation, particularly to this piece. So the the movement that has always got my head scratching every time is the third movement. I don't <laughs> get it. You have these two gorgeous Nachtmusik, one and two, and then this odd, very short, not long at all. Ten minutes. Yeah, this, well, Mahler standards. Mahler, yeah, by Mahler standards. Mahler standards, short. short. Yeah thing that happens, mm-hmm. and then back into a Nachtmusik again. So what is that thing in the third movement? Well, <clears throat> let's talk about, because the second movement is important too, because I think there is a natural progression from the first to the last movement. So before we talk about the third movement, just let me say something about the second first, if mm-hmm. you don't mind. Um, so we have this sort of I don't want to even call it nightmarish quality in the first movement because I don't think you you've been able to really get to sleep. You know, you're struggling with the demons. You're trying. You're tossing and turning, and then at the very end, there's like this last burst of energy, and then a very abrupt cutoff in the end of the first movement. So it's like you're finally so exhausted that you do fall asleep. Okay, and then you enter these three dreams, and I think the three middle movements are really very dreamlike because they're they're fantasy, but they're three very different fantasies. Okay, the second movement um, <clears throat> is, is the first Nachtmusik, and it's a march, uh, again, but, um, it's, it's a very eclectic march, and it's really almost like in a dream, when you have all these ideas that aren't necessarily tied together by anything logical, you know, it's, it's like a stream of consciousness thing, um, and Mahler, and in the second movement, you know, Mahler throws in, I mean, the cowbells from the sixth symphony are in there, you know, um, and, and he does the major minor thing. He does, he puts folk song, um, just really simple tunes uh, over the top of, you know, a, a really a changing ostinato. And there's this underlying march that's always happening. And it gets really loud. It gets really soft. It gets really far away. And, you know, it opens with these horn calls, which are like Berlioz Symphony Fantastique. You know, so it's the countryside. And, and one of the notes from, there are a couple notes from Mengelberg. Um, in Mahler's rehearsals, and Mahler said, when the music is soft and, you know, far away, think about the pastures and the countryside. And when it's louder, think about the city. And it's a, it's a patrol. So it's a soldier just walking, an imaginary soldier on patrol with a torch, okay, looking about, you know, hearing the calls, their military signals, maybe perhaps from the base you know, that he is, has left to go on patrol from. And then there are calls of shepherds off in the distance. And then you hear the cows. And, and then you approach the city and things get a little bit, uh, you know, more active. Uh, and Mengelberg writes that uh, Mahler said, you know, when the soldier arrives in the city as part of his patrol, his uh, beloved spots him from a tavern and runs out and grabs his arm and they walk arm in arm and have a couple little snuggles real quick while he's on his patrol and then he goes off again into the distance. So, but all these things, they don't really connect to one another except that they're stream of consciousness and all these things, the folk music, the military elements, the signals, the calls of the shepherds, the cows, these are all things that Mahler had as part of his sort of musical DNA because of where he grew up and his love of nature and the, you know, 
And so if you look at all these things, you say, well, this is actually a really personal, it's, it's like stream of consciousness. So it, but it's the first dream, you know, and he goes through all this. And the other thing is, um, he famously said in one of those rehearsals, I believe in Amsterdam that, um, this was, he said, think of, uh, Rembrandt's night watch, right? It's a famous painting of a, a man in the center with a, with a torch, I think. Um, and there's all these characters around him, you know, some are almost, you know, you can barely see them. Um, and others are, you know, very light. And it's a, a classic example of chiaroscuro, you know, light and dark and the use of that. And so some people, and this is why Mahler hated when people repeated these things he said in rehearsals, because he, you know, he liked to keep it open to interpretation, but he is a conductor and he was one, probably the greatest conductor of his generation, you know, to inspire his orchestra and to get the sound he wanted, he had to give them images and examples, which may or may not have been what was in his mind when he actually wrote the piece, but that that doesn't matter. The point is, he was trying to emphasize the point to the orchestra that they had to make a big contrast between the quiet moments and the loud moments, because it's a musical, it's a musical chiaroscuro, you know, the musical technique of light and dark, you know, juxtaposed violently in some cases. And remember, he was in Amsterdam when he was conducting this rehearsal, so they would have been very familiar with Rembrandt, and so he used that as an example. So, it's a good thing to keep in mind, but it's not a tone poem about the night watch. However, it is a patrol. And at the very end, the last note, it ends in a very peculiar way. The music sort of winds down. You know, you get the sense that maybe the the person on patrol has finally walked off into the distance. And then there's this one last ping of light. Harp plays forte, and, um, and the cellos play a, a harmonic. And Mahler told the orchestra, and I love this, I told the orchestra this morning, this story actually, that that's the torch going out at the end of the patrol. So it's one last bing flicker of light, and then it's a very slow fade, and the torch went out. And dream number one has concluded. And this is very much like a dream that we've all had. Yeah. Uh, you know, you begin in one point, and then, you know, you're you're in your house, and... Suddenly you're in a school, and then you're in the grocery store, right? And then you're in the mall, you know. We and then you're suspended these... in midair over no, and it doesn't make any sense, you know. But it's it's this this travel, right? It's a meandering, you know, through the through the subconscious, if you will, um, as many of us do in dreams, I think. And so then we get to the second uh, of the three interior movements, which is he writes Schattenhof at the beginning of it, which is a great word I love in German. It means, I mean, loosely translated is like shadowy, you know. Um, so again, lightness and darkness play a very key role here. But this one is less logical because, uh, even less logical than the first Nachtmusik, which was not logical at all, um, because it's not about real things. It's about ancient legends, uh, medieval stories, phantoms, ghosts, you know, spirits of the past, all these ethereal things that you can never, as soon as you see them or you think you have it, you reach for it and it's gone, you know? They're in the corner of your eye. Yes, yes. You turn. Exactly, exactly. That's right. Um, and so Schattenhof, you know, means means just that. Like, and, and if you think about some dreams that you may remember where you you like I wait it, it was it was something and you almost have it but you can't grasp it because it's fleeting and it's not clearly defined. So he writes all these. It starts you know 
very mysteriously with just these little single notes in the timpani and the basses and the clarinets and the horns and the flute. And it's, it's sort of the fragments that gradually come together uh, in, to form this shape. And then as soon as it starts to take shape, then it dissolves again. It's like this constant um, back and forth. And so you can really never grab on to anything, which is great in the opening section. And so the, the strings, you know, play these wonderful, it's like, you know, ghosts, Wisping through the air and whirling around your head, and you just you can't catch them. It's it's really, it's fantastic. I just love it. Um, but and then you get to um, a parody of a waltz in the middle of it. You know, and the the umchuk is uh, accentuated because he writes the horns have it first, and they're two or three dynamic levels above everyone else playing the melody. So it's a an odd balance, and it's meant to be odd. It's meant to be exaggerated, and it's almost like these, you know, exaggerated, imaginary, perhaps somewhat grotesque characters all come together in sort of this macabre dance. But it's not a dance macabre like Saint-Saëns or like Berlioz. It's Mahler, so it's much more vague and harder to grasp because he doesn't give us as many concrete things. And as soon as you feel secure, like you've something has been established, again, it, it disintegrates, and you're back to square one. He throws in other details that were very forward-looking. I mean, he does the Bartok pits long before Bartok ever thought of it himself, where the low strings snap the string so hard that it, it hits the wood. And I love Mahler's scores because he's so specific. And he writes exactly that. He said the strings should, uh, you know, do their pizzicato so intensely that the string will actually hit the wood and make a loud... And he tells you all of this in the score. Which is the Mahler symphony where he de- demands that the oboists stand up. Well, he, he has a lot of... Uh, a lot of moments where he tells, you know, musicians, put your bell up, you know, stand here, do this. I mean, he because he was a great conductor and he knew exactly the limits of what an orchestra could do and he knew exactly what would happen when he asked for certain things. So I, I think when you're conducting a Mahler symphony, of course there's room for interpretation because the one great thing that Mahler didn't do is give metronome marks. So, but... If you pick your tempo, and so like the the first movement is a good example, not to go backwards, but you have to think about your final destination and everything that happens in between. And in an almost 30-minute movement, that's a huge task. And as long as you know where you're going, then you plan almost backwards or you, you pick the point that's critical that you want to be a certain way. And then everything else, Mahler tells you, Gradually, it has to get you know faster here, more urgent here. Hold back here. This can be more reserved. Heavier here, lighter here. This can be brisk. You know, he's very. He gives you all this very specific information, but it's all relative. So, your job as the conductor is to decide. Okay, where am I going to start from? And once you start, then I think you have to do everything Mahler says. But you're in control of that starting point, and then everything else, the relativity, the shape. The relationships have to be maintained. So, like, in other words, if he tells me to play somewhat held back and I decide to speed up, that's te- that's wrong. You can't do that. But how much I want to hold back, that's somewhat up to me. Although he even says, sometimes he says just a little or not too <laughs> much. And my other favorite thing, I told the orchestra this uh, also this week, is, you know, you're conducting along and... Uh, 
things are feeling pretty good. You're getting into a groove. Let's say you're in, you know, 4-4, four, four, and you think, oh, I think I'm going to go into 2. And you look down at just that moment, I'm not kidding, where you're starting to think as a conductor, I think I might go into 2. And Mahler says, stay in 4, you know. And it's printed there in black and white and ink in the score. It's like having Mahler standing on the podium with you. It's amazing, you know. And there's this other place in rehearsal that orchestra musicians were asking because it's like it's like a small paragraph in German, you know, in their parts. And they don't all speak German. And so they're like, what does this mean? What does this mean? And at the very, very end of this long description of a section, and he said, uh, better, you know, imahalba, which means, and, and they thought that that meant, because sometimes he'll write how, but like half the section should play here. And it was a good question. And I, I laughed. I said, no, that's for me. I should stay in two. <laughs> and so they kind of laughed at that. Um, but anyway, he, he's got all these, all these indications, um, which you have to follow. And so... All right, so now we're 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 in the ghost section. The ghost section, and, right? And um, and that's where they they draw together, and and in, and it doesn't, it, it doesn't, it, it never it never feels completed. No, it's it's very fragmented throughout, and then at the very end, it kind of slows down, and then he gives us like a a button, you know, like in an Italian opera, or something. Boom, chick. It's like okay, now we're done. Curtain, you know, next act. It, it doesn't make sense, and it's not supposed to make sense. It's about creating that atmosphere, that fleeting atmosphere, that ghost-like atmosphere. Another thing, though, that I think is great about the word Schattenhaupt, and I don't know whether this is just um, an overachieving musicologist's observation or not, but when I, <laughs> so I don't know if it has any actual basis in reality, but it does make sense. And that is that um, Schattenhaupt is a word that Strauss uses in Till Eulenspiegel which was written before Mahler 7. And Strauss and Mahler were friends, actually. Mm -hmm. And so, if you know Till Eulenspiegel, it's all about mischief. Mm -hmm. And the fact that Mahler included the word Schattenhaft, I I don't know, I like the idea that maybe there was some intent there. Because I think these ghoulish figures and these, you know, ancient legends floating around and these ideas swirling and everything, there's there's also a mischief and there's 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 an element of fun involved and just surrendering yourself to that that loss of control you know i feel there's a pixar short in this oh absolutely oh my god totally i would love to do that but you know what i mean so that's why at the beginning when i said it's not all about darkness there's uh, there are moments of fun there are moments of mischief there's moments of light i mean the parody of the waltz uh in in the third movement is it's not scary or dark. It's fun. It's a little out of control, and it's lopsided, but that's by design. Well, they're ghosts dancing. Right. Their sense of rhythm has always been a little off. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, you know, then we go into the fourth movement, which the we've serenade. talked about. Right. So so we have stream of consciousness uh, want meandering through the countryside and the town in an imaginary setting. Torch goes out. Then we have this bizarre dream with all these things you can't grasp onto is shadowy, Schattenhaupt. Then you have romance, which is again a fantasy, so it's a dream, but it's a sweet dream, and it's a, you know, I think a very happy dream, and, and just, it's so sweet, it's so lovely. And then we get to the last movement, which is, Mahler says about, you know, beaming, blazing sun, broad daylight, happy people, you know, we're through the night, the sun is up, this is optimistic. This is positive. Like, okay, we're, we're going to be all right. Um, it's a total 
I mean, it put, it's, a, it's a perfect balance, actually, for the first movement, which is so dark and so heavy. Um, the last movement is really just a romp. And he uses the rondo form, which... And this is, <laughs> this is one of the things that has driven musicologists crazy ever since, and critics ever since it was uh, written, is that, you know, he says it's a rondo, but the rondo form, he's, like, abusing it. I mean, it's not really the rondo form... And did he do that on purpose, or was it just, you know, crappy compositional technique? Or, you know, is it supposed to make sense? All the cadences, for example, the strong cadences happen in the middle of phrase. It doesn't make any sense. And then when you have the end of a section, there's like a weak cadence or no cadence, and then it just shifts. And there are all these different things going on, and it just seems like he kind of, you know, had everything left in this basket and just dumped it out on the table and, you know, see saw where everything fell. And people criticized him for that a lot. And... I can understand it, but then, <clears throat> again, I look to Mengelberg, and I look to Kinchertkabah and to Amsterdam. What did Mahler say about this movement? Well, we know he said to Mengelberg and to the orchestra, the key to the last movement is about activity, and this Weltläuf, which is like hustle and bustle. That's what it means. Like downtown Vienna, you know, Mahler walks out on a rehearsal break, and Mahler was fond of walking, and you can imagine him, you know, going just, you know, in some cases five feet from one place to another in Vienna at the time, you would have heard a lot of different things. So you hear, again, you hear folk music, you hear, um, you know, like references to military music. Again, you hear minuets from like, you know, a Renaissance ensemble. You hear yodeling, you know, which is a very Austrian thing to throw in there. People who were listening to it in Austria would have totally identified with that. This relaxed sort of boy you know the yodeling kind of stuff um and of course you have meistersinger the um, the very blatant reference to meistersinger which um i think is an interesting choice because if you know meistersinger you know it's about this amateur who wins a singing competition and it's all about joy it's about the joy in singing and the joy in music making you know these people who enter this competition they have to work all week and then they look forward to making music on sunday that's when they get to sing that's when they get to really be free and express themselves and so that the joy in that it's almost amateurish in moments you get the feeling like it's you know community orchestra of people just getting together because they just love to play so much and it's got that energy about it um and it's the other thing you can think about is maybe if you're a spectator in some sort of parade where you just get one group that's completely different after the other going past the review stand and every single little vignette is perfect in its own way and they're not supposed to logically connect necessarily Uh, And that's not the point. The point is the hustle and bustle. The point is life after all this, you know, these nightmarish and strange, bizarre dreams and really a a, a hopeless struggle in the first movement. The the last movement is about life and activity. So was there anything on record that you found Wagner's take on this cribbing of Meistersinger by Mahler? Well, Wagner was dead by the time. Oh. Yeah, so he wouldn't have known about it. He wouldn't have it. known about no. it. Go oh, good. <laughs> yeah, probably. I don't know if Wagner would have liked that very much. But yes, uh, from my timeline, it's flawed. You never know. <laughs> well, it's okay. But, you know, again, you have to, when you think about the last movement, too, not only the, the scene in Vienna and how diverse it was, and, you know, right. if Mahler, like I said, if we went on a 10-minute walk, God, he could have heard 50 things, you know, that were musical uh, in Vienna at the time. But... Also, Mahler, if you look through the history of his repertoire while he was at the, the opera in Vienna, 
it's staggering how many pieces he was conducting and and very different pieces from you know early Mozart to uh, Wagner, yeah. you know, which at the time was very modern Wagner. I mean, that was, you know, um, and so he had a tremendous breadth of knowledge of styles and music and tradition and history and just so many sounds floating around in his head at all times. And I think he draws from all of that, not only in the last movement, really throughout this symphony. So why did you choose this? Now, you've never done the seventh before. So why did you decide for your next, uh, th- this this time around with our friend Gustav, why did you choose what is really the one that, for me, I, I find it the hardest one to wrap my, my mm-hmm. head around. So, I mean, I know I'm not alone in this. Well, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think in a perfect world, I would do the sixth before the seventh, but given the fact that on our season we only really have room to program one Mahler symphony a year, um, I didn't have that luxury. And just you know, from a purely practical standpoint, I had a head start on seven, and I've been fascinated by it and loved it for so long. And I know six, but less well. And I just I was more eager to do seven, and you know, six I hope will come soon in a future season. But uh, I think seven is, you know, this season, if you look at it, we have, um, you know, we just announced next season and a lot of people are excited about it. Me, most of all, of course. Number Um, one. Well, (laughs) number one is happening next. Yeah, that's right. Um, But, you know, we have a lot of more sort of bold choices next year outside the box. And this year, by comparison, is more conservative. Um, Although we still have a lot of things that are, uh, unusual on this season too. I think this is a great season that we're in right now. But I thought Mahler Seven would be one of the more bold choices in this season because it's less known, because it's less understood, um, because it's enigmatic. And I I think that you know we've done two Mahler symphonies together here, my, me and the orchestra. I mean, and um, you know it would be nice to do a f- couple more before we did seven together. But at the same time, I think it's a great journey of discovery for all of us together. And it'll make our ability to interpret the other symphonies of Mahler all that greater. It reminds me of uh, something that Carlos Kalmar was saying about playing Haydn. Mm. And that only the, the, the orchestras that play Haydn well can really play Mahler well. But just because an orchestra can play Mahler well does not mean that they, oh, they can play Haydn well. I agree with that 100%. No, Haydn, I mean, he's another one of my favorites. And we've done a lot of Haydn since I've been here. Could always use more. You could, well, you have some options with Haydn. Mm-hmm. Like well, <laughs> like a lot of options with Haydn, yeah. But no, I mean, the seventh, I, I just thought I just thought it was time. So talk to me a little bit about, because I know how much you love Mahler, what kind of journey did you see Mahler going through from the first note of his first symphony to the last note of oh. his last as a person? Boy, I mean, such a such an epic journey. I mean, really, he went from, you know, early beginnings he was very ambitious he was working really hard he went through to the heights of musical society in Europe um, through tragedy personal and professional uh, in Europe sought a new beginning in New York didn't work out exactly how he had planned and then his heart condition caught up with him and he left us far too soon Um, but he was making music the whole time and I, I think 
you can trace his his struggles and his you know his increasing depth as a human being with the music too because it gets more um profound i think but that's natural any composer who is developing will get more substantive i think with time i just would have would love to have known what he would have done next you know what would the rest of his symphonies have looked like would he have written a proper opera that's my one of my biggest questions would he i don't know he knew so many operas he loved opera um but you know he wrote great songs yeah great art song he wrote you know Das Lied von der Erde is like you know another one of his symphonies one of my absolute favorites but i think his connection with nature uh and hu- and human nature and nature in its purest you know form got stronger as the pieces you know and he was still connected with the cosmic you know but there's a lot of cosmic in the first symphony you know it's kind of dreamy and like from outer space and atoms gathering and things like that and then you know the second symphony is you know a little more well religious in tone with the resurrection and that theme and the vocal is great the third symphony is really about nature and it's just beautiful and epic the fourth completely different you know the song about the angels in heaven and the sort of reverse symphony which we did which is one of my favorites and actually i think the fourth is the one i've conducted the most out of all of them fifth is you know iconic but again very you know personal like human symphony that's really the beginning of them and then sixth gets kind of kind of goes to a scary place and then seven we just talked about is hard to grasp but i think uh probably the most autobiographical of Mahler, maybe, at least at that time. Then eight is like, again, something, uh, the closest thing he ever wrote to an opera, really. I mean, just this this epic statement where he was trying, you know, he was in search of this, um, this sort of global approach. Uh, he wanted a piece to just wrap everything up, and he tried so hard, and he came close in the eighth, but, you know, no one can ever do that, and I think he knew that, but the process and the struggle was something that that he thrived on also, and I think that's sort of what drives a lot of artists, is you're chasing the unattainable in a way. You, you'll never really be totally satisfied, and you'll never really think you've written the perfect piece because if you do then you should quit because you're not doing it right anymore. It, <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly, but th- this was a man who had a lot of tragedy. Oh, he did. And 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 things things did not go well for him. Mm-hmm. And, and Bruckner was much the same. These right. were were a couple of guys who just couldn't catch a break. Well, and I think Mahler was so and he also, you know, he he has this reputation as being this dour, you know, serious kind of pain in the butt kind of guy and he definitely was that. I mean, you know, one of his musicians challenged him to a duel once because he was so disrespectful in rehearsal, he said, you know, and of course Mahler said, you know, you're ridiculous, I can't do that, blah, blah, blah. That's a whole, that's a very interesting story. And we have the letter that he wrote in response to the challenge for a duel, by the way. Um, <clears throat> but he also had a great sense of humor. Like his friend said he could be very funny when he was engaged because he was often, you know, his mind was somewhere else. But if he was engaged with you, he had a great sense of humor. And, um, you know, there are a lot of references to, uh, Jewish songs throughout his music and klezmer, uh, klezmer music. And in the seventh, um, there are uh, moments where, you know, it's like Jewish folk music that comes in, in addition to the Austrian. And, you know, it was sort of, 
there were a lot of anti-Semitic sentiments floating around Europe at that time, and, you know, he famously sort of rejected his Jewish roots in order to advance his career, and then I think felt conflicted about that. But he had a self-deprecating sense of humor uh, because he said to someone about, I think it was the Seventh Symphony, I may be confusing my symphonies now with all the research I've done, but he was pointing out the different elements, and he said, and you know, this is Jewish. He said, I am Jewish, you realize that, right? (laughs) Which was like a shocking thing to say, but people, you know, he had that sort of dry wit about him. Um, and another one of my favorite stories, just speaking of humor, uh, sorry to be drag on about this, but um, did I tell you the foie gras story yet? No. Oh, this is one of my favorites. Okay, so Mahler was um, being, I think he was having lunch with a, a critic or something like that, which in and of itself was unusual. But uh, they were talking about whatever project he was working on at the time, and uh, somehow it came up and the critic said, well, Maestro, do you know... Um, what the musicians say about working for you? He says, no, tell me. And he said, well, it's like uh, it's like foie gras. And Mahler sort of stopped and was puzzled. And he said, what what on earth do you mean? And the critic, you know, probably was starting to get a little bit nervous, And but he explained it. He said, well, think about how foie gras is made. You take this poor creature and you just force feed it until it gets poisoned poisoned to death, dies, and, you know, suffers along the way, and then at the end you have this exquisite delicacy to enjoy. And so he explained that to Mahler, and Mahler had a stone face and was just staring him down, and he wasn't sure if he was going to punch him or laugh, and then Mahler cracked a smile, and he, he thought that was really funny. And then a couple weeks or months, I don't know how much time passed after that, he was in the middle of a really intense rehearsal and rehearsal period where everyone was sort of at the end of their tethered, you know, and he could feel the tension in the room and he stopped and he knew that this joke was common among everyone in the, in the Vienna Opera House. And he looked at everyone. He said, don't worry, friends, the foie gras is almost ready. And that cut the tension and everybody laughed. And so, you know, he was in on the joke and so he could be funny and self-deprecating, but, um, I love that foie gras story. <laughs> I do, too. It's <laughs> great. It's actually a pretty good description, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, when, uh, when we listen to this with our modern ears, we still scratch our heads and say, this is kind of weird. I can't imagine what the audience oh. would have thought about this symphony the first time around. This, oh, this I know. had to have been unlike anything they'd ever experienced. Well, and you know, when he came over to New York... He had just written the the seventh, you know, was available, and um, people were asking for it in New York, and he refused to play it in New York. And do you know why? Because he said nobody knows me over there; they won't understand the seventh symphony because they haven't heard any of my music yet. So he was very wise. That that's, I think, a good choice. I I, I wouldn't want to introduce a whole other continent to my music with the seventh symphony because you need context, you know, for all the reasons we've been talking about uh, in this podcast. I mean, there's just so much that goes into it that I think he was absolutely correct in saying, no, 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 this is not a good first hearing of my style and my musical voice uh, for the people in New York. Well, thank you for helping us understand the (laughs) symphony a little bit better. My pleasure. Again, our guest today has been been the music director of the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra, Ward Stair. If you would like more information about the Rochester Philharmonic season, you can go to rpo.org. I'm Julia Figueres, and this Wagner, this this uh, Wagner slash Mahler podcast, <laughs> is a production of WXXI Public Broadcasting.